Welcome back to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to like the video and subscribe for future content. For more information about our one-on-one coaching and other training or nutrition options, visit giftedperformance.com. Our newest feature, the Gifted Express, offers premium programming for bodybuilders, powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, and lifestyle clients for only $30 a month. Enjoy the video. We'll see you on the next one. And as always, stay gifted. Welcome back. Another episode of the GPP, Gifted Performance Podcast. Giving you knowledge, practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. Everyone's got their coffee. We're thoroughly stimulated and we're ready to get going. I don't want to waste any time. I don't want to do any introductions. I don't want to hear how your day was. I don't want to hear how your week is. I just want to watch this deadlift video. So our taste of the internet today is, you guys see this video, this deadlift video that I have here that I put in the show notes for the day? (laughs) I saw it. You saw it? It's wacky. So yeah, how fucking heavy is, how heavy is 502.5? Can someone math that out for me? It's, it's like 1,104 pounds, I think. 500 and what? Two and a half kilos. 500 and what? 502.5. Chris, Christoph Weir, oh man. Weir. 1,105 pounds. Okay, 1,105. So it was like, Eddie Hall for a while had the 1100 deadlift, right? And it was like, I had to die. Like, I like parts of me are never going to come back. Like, I left my soul to do it. And that was 11. <laughs> that was what? That was 500 kilos. So 1100 pounds. And then Thor, half Thor Bjornsson pulled what? 501? 500.5? I think it was like one kilo above. And now we've got uh, Christoph Wiedersbicki. <laughs> that's, that's all I got, guys. That's the, that's the best I got. Um, I mean, his name is Christoph. Christoph with like, you would never spell it like that. Yeah. He threw in so many extra letters in there. All right. But he pulled 502.5 from the floor. So I think Thor's was like, I guess we could call it somewhat easy. what is this oh i assume there's some like audio going on in the background that we can't hear someone's probably like prefacing the video oh sumo stance so we know it doesn't count cheating straps he's cheating already even worse double cheater he doesn't look like Here, he looks natty. here's the thing when i see videos like this where someone started the part yeah we have man why what's up oh <laughs> No, I thought we were. I thought you guys were just talking. I was reading something. Oh. Hey, Paul's here too, guys. Everybody say hello, Paul. What do you want to say to the people? Yeah. Nothing. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So what I was gonna say is, when I see someone pulling a deadlift like this, like it's straps, like he's obviously using chalk. He's probably even using like a belt and sumo stance. The first thing that comes to my mind is like, I could probably do this if I was using as many. <laughs> like tricks and little like cheating little kind of sneaky ways <laughs> to lift more weight like i could probably do this <laughs> i haven't tried but i have my suspicions he just looks like he's strong like look he's got that strong sort of like high top fade like nice. the the caucasian high top fade 
That's that like military high top fade. Eleven hundred and seven pounds. Eleven oh seven. All right. So maybe we're we're including the weight of the uh, clips in there as well. All right. Let's watch the poll again. One more time. I just love how much the bar bends these deadlift bars before it even comes close to breaking the ground. Pulling it. We don't even have weights off the ground yet. And this is what the bar looks like. It makes it easier, right? That's like the premise of the deadlift bar is that it makes it easier. That's a, yeah, that's why they bend. So it increases like the leverage. If you're used, yeah. If you're used to pulling Can on Can you explain them. to me why? I don't understand. It Does it like put you in a better position for when the weights like actually have to break the floor yeah you already have it part of the distance up you know so and also when when you do are able to bend the bar like that you're, you're wedging yourself into a stronger position yeah. too yeah okay that makes sense because so most people are weaker off the floor improving your leverages so you have more of a mechanical advantage as the bar bends more does that does that relationship yeah, and exist infinitely? So if we were like, if I was deadlifted on like a spaghetti noodle bar and it like really fucking bent a lot, would I have even more advantage? But that's why you see people hit bigger totals with like an elephant bar, oh. right? Because it's longer. So it gets, uh, you, you can load it up heavier. And I think they use those in like some strongman strong yeah. type stuff or... You know, I think I've seen, uh, what's his name? Um, he was a client of mine for a minute. Was Jamal. Jamal, Jamal you know, yeah, did yeah. a massive elephant bar deadlift, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So just another, honestly, Kristoff, if you're watching, let's, let's get real here, dog. The deadlift bar, the straps, the belt, the sumo stance, pull it all away. And we know that you're nothing without it. I actually think I saw this guy do like a conventional deadlift with no straps or anything like that. And I think he pulled like 800 pounds. And that's usually how it goes. Like we had Shane Hunt on the podcast. Everyone's like, oh, like what a, you know, cheater deadlifts 900 sumo. But like, what can he actually do like conventional? And I think a couple days later, he posted like a 675 for 10 conventional deadlift. I was like, oh. Okay, that. Yeah, I, I think this is nothing short of absolutely impressive uh, with straps, sumo, and me personally. There's some people who are built re really well for sumo, and yeah, it's just nothing short of easier for them. But like sumo, sumo can fucking suck, and it's hard. It's hard to do. It, it can Feels be very hard to do with good technique, and it just straight up fucking hurts me. Um, I feel like I'm about to split the, my, my fucking kidneys and intestines are about to come out of the crease next to my dick. Like, is that Charlie? You know, it's Charlie. I hope he makes another appearance this episode and comes and cozies in. Behind I pulled, him. I used to pull sumo back in the, the power building days. And that just always felt better for me. Like conventional, just, it never yeah. felt good no matter how strong I got it at it, it always felt like dog shit. But then for whatever reason, sumo just felt better, but the aches and pains were just in different places. It's like my adductors were just always fried like I can, all the time. I can randomly show up at the gym and pull like a decent sumo deadlift set. Like I posted on my Instagram. I did. I think I pulled like 450 for a set of 12 sumo. And that was the first time I had sumo deadlifted in probably like nine or 10 months. 
but the pain in my spine and my hips and my knees spinal everything like below my belly button the next couple days was was alarming so i made a bad decision like back in uh that 24-hour fitness over there in winter park shout outs to those people who won't let you have a gym bag um but i pulled just randomly like on the way out i was like leaving and steve and all those knuckleheads were at the front and they were deadlifting. He's like, you won't deadlift this. And I was dead cold. And I think I pulled like 495. My man. Had, hadn't, hadn't sumoed in forever. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And they were like, do, do 500. I was like, nope. Negative. I'm out. Negative. <laughs> but yeah, everything the next day I was like, you know, you just try to sit down. You're like, why does my entire lower half just hurt? So here's a here's a greater question about kind of like what this deadlift means to the lifting community. Cause it was like 500 kilos was impossible until it happened. And then it happened. And Eddie Hall came out and was like, you know, I think he might've been in like a deadlift suit or like a single ply suit as well when he did it. And this guy is not in a suit. And then we see 501. Who Eddie? I, I believe Eddie was wearing a No, he, he just had straps. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I'm almost certain he was shirtless too. Love it. Love it. But Eddie came out and was like, yeah. you know, it almost killed me. And then Thor pulls 501. This guy comes along and pulls 502.5. Are we seeing so, like, how, how high does it go? Cause it was like, you know, it took forever to break the four minute mile. And then what is it? Roger Bannister, Richard Bannister, Roger Bannister ran a sub four minute mile. And then like 26 or 27 people ran a sub four minute mile that year. Is this going to be like the new benchmark that we're seeing from people where like all of a sudden we're going to start seeing 500 kilo plus deadlifts pop up all over the place? Or is this still going to be a, a pretty rare benchmark to hit? What do you guys think? I think we'll see it more often because I think more people are being exposed to it. More people see that for some people it's attainable more people are giving it a shot. So the pool, the population pool of people that are trying and chasing it are probably higher than they used to be. Um, and then, you know, I think that'll probably also discourage some people from chasing to the tops of the ranks when they are just like, wow, I, yeah, I qualified for nationals, but I have a 1400 pound total and all these top power lifters <laughs> something have a 2,000 pound total. Um, Imagine having a 1,400 pound total and you see this guy pull 75%, 80% of your total <laughs> on one lift. It's like, oh man, all he has to do is participate on squat and bench. What do you think, I wonder Jay? what the rest of his lifts look like. Like I remember kids in uh, college telling me that they qualified for national uh, nationals. And I'm like, that must sound real impressive to people that don't know, have any idea like what's going on here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think the, you know, you brought up Roger, Roger Bannister and Roger Bannister, which is interesting about him. And I think this could apply here as well. He, he broke that four minute mile record, but his training was just known as not being very good. He didn't understand that you don't have to run hard all the time to make progress at running fast. So he just ran hard all the time. And he did that. And then as soon as he, and I don't think he ever changed his training protocols, but then the rest of the field kind of pieced together, like, why don't we try just not running quite as hard? And that's when 
people started to really break his record even more. So this could apply so here. It's like it's like they discovered RIR for running. Yeah. 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 They just realize. Yeah. They, they, they more or less realize like intensity was not the thing that's driving these adaptations. Like, especially in like, you don't have to run hard all the time. Like you basically need to train quite a bit below what would be considered sort of a, a comfortable heart rate for the majority. Like it's just easy running yeah. for long distances. Is what kind of builds that base that will allow you to run faster for longer. And so he didn't understand that he was just like, no, you just run really hard and that's just what you have to do. And then as soon as people realize that you didn't have to run quite as hard, that's when they start to break that record more often. And then that could also apply here. Like this guy might, he might have a, the combination of the appropriate training protocols, genetics, the appropriate chemistry. He might have all the things going and people might start to pick up what he's doing. And then that might allow others to ascend, you know, to his level or possibly even pass it. Um, I want to bring up two things like one I, I think that's interesting when you said the not train is hard because i think a lot of times when you watch high level powerlifters train you'll see like a lot of their sets they might be like they might call it an rpa and you look at it and you're like that was like a five or six like that was flies. fast and you look at a lot of their training and they're not hitting near maximal attempts uh frequently in training right um, or they might hit one heavy single for the day or something, or, and most of their work is not, but, uh, I want to rewind back a little bit because you talked about seeing this stuff happen more often. And I remember Tom gave me an interesting perspective once. I think, I can't remember why I think I went up to him and I was like, oh man, did you see this guy broke the record at this weight class in non-tested powerlifting? And I think Tom said something like, oh, who cares? Like, that's why people aren't into non-tested powerlifting anymore because totals don't last. Like, they get broken all the time, just one after another. When you said... So I, I think that's, like, interesting, thinking about people reaching a new benchmark and consistently trying to break it or you know hit new new places jay you have an endurance like an endurance running or an endurance sport kind of background um i think do you think that like cooking the gains like low and slow is like more of an endurance thing like it's more well accepted in the endurance world that that's like what you have to do now and is is taking a little bit longer to like work its way into the bodybuilding space because like when i look at endurance stuff now it's like you know most of these high level long distance runners cross-country skiers they're doing 95 percent of their volume like zone two they're not pushing really high it's like is is that even a viable strategy in a sport like powerlifting mm. <sighs> I think that eventually, I think the difference between the two is, is that the sort of the demonstration of strength, eventually you would have to practice, practice that at some point in time, like within your program, eventually you would have to do something heavy or else you would never see just that experience sure. itself where running, it's like, it, it's the same look, like it kind of looks the same. It just, it, it is basically the same, like running, the difference between running fast and running slow is almost purely cardiovascular where lifting something light and lifting something heavy there's a lot of psychology along with that like there's a lot of neural drive because if you're 
Does that make any sense at all? No, like if you're lifting yeah. something light, the way you switch on is completely different than when you lift something heavy. And I feel like that's the thing that should probably be, needs to be practiced more regularly when it comes to just, you know, single lift events, stuff like that. Yeah. I think it's an interesting question, right? Because the fibers that we're trying to train, right? They are not, uh, activated very well it seems at lower intensities right how low is low so then it may... uh i i'm just mean like equating the intensity in terms of the same way as you might with uh low intensity running something that you could oh. just do for a long time very low fatigue right so i mean 20 30 percent of one or even less i don't know right i mean it's kind of like at a certain point doing push-ups is no longer effective for hypertrophy you know cali muscle disagrees um <laughs> i can't help but wonder but, uh, oh good i'm sorry oh man i'm losing my train of thought <sighs> go ahead i lost my train of thought i was gonna say like a lot of how you determine intensity in running or most endurance sports it's all perception of effort like it's literally your person like how does it feel we're training adaptation like we're looking more at numbers i guess not all the time some people do train for strength by feel more or less uh what's that guy's name doug um, miller fuck that guy <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I can't think like his, most of his training protocols, he's an older power lifter. Um, I can't think of his name. Shaco. most of his training does involve. No, most of his training does involve Jim Wendler. He's no, no, not that old. Like does my yelling names help. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Um, and I can see his face, but he, you know, he's like in that Greg Knuckles crowd. I think he's, um, maybe a little bit older than that, but he trains a lot by his feel like he determines his training sessions by how he's feeling on that individual day mike to share but he's yeah 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 exactly i yeah. did it um on my third you try. did he <laughs> <laughs> nailed it that's crazy um but when i think about endurance like a lot of some of my training for endurance stuff does involve sort of hard numbers, especially if it's on the bike or something like that. It's like a hard number, like you're doing 200 watts for this amount of time, where some of it's just like, how do you feel? Like how, you know, because you can't really, you're, I'm looking at my watch for heart rate, but sometimes I'm just going by how I feel and I wanted to keep it as low an effort as possible, where I feel like powerlifting, at times it just has to get really hard and it's probably more of that than it is the latter where it isn't quite as hard. Paul, I like when you said uh, um, it's like I, they discovered RIR for running. So I like that a lot. Um, I regained my uh, thoughts a little bit. But, you know, just for example, we're seeing a little bit more data showing that people are experiencing hypertrophy a bit further from failure than we once thought. And, you know, it's very easy to hear about how um, a certain amount of fatigue may be desirable to hit high threshold motor units and activate the fibers that aren't active in, in lower intensity, lower effort work, and to hear about effective reps and just think more really hard reps is better, 
right? Or getting as many effective reps as possible is better. And the literature does demonstrate that there, there's more to it than effective reps. We see, we've seen also literature showing groups that with more effective reps don't um, get any better hypertrophy for the most part often. Um, and so, you know, just from my own experience that a very large bulk, like a good, been lifting for 13 years, probably a good seven of those years. Uh, my own training was very, very much, much more conservative, further than five reps from failure for like probably a, a good bit of it with a lot of it also existing in the three to five range and very, very little of it approaching the zero to one RIR range. And, um, even now my training now is a little more intense, but during that whole time period of doing more conservative training, that's where I received the majority of my growth. And there are a lot of arguments we can create against that, right? You know, like now I'm 13 years in, I'm just not going to grow as much, you know, like, but, um, and I've seen it with clients where I, I try to push them to work harder for a long time and they just don't. And I'm like, you're not hitting the RIR targets. You're, you're being very conservative, too conservative. And then, you know, after six months, a year later, I'm like, holy shit, you still grew. You still made great progress. You know what I mean? And so I think people, it, it, it may never go away just because of the the nature of the activity people want to work hard they they're hungry for it and some people even have neuroses and anxiety about it uh it's just an activity that's centered around you know gut busting reps and shit like that the i'm gonna say i'm gonna pick before we move on to our question from the crowd i'm gonna i want to say something that'll just make people mad because it's what i do for fun in my free time so good coaches you know good coaches understand that long-term success over a lifting career is best cooked low and slow now i was thinking about this the other day it's like people who advocate for training to failure or gut busting intensity all the time those are people who enjoy like microwaving their meat. They're like, did you know that you can put a chicken breast in the microwave and it'll be ready to eat in two minutes? They're like, I need my meat and I need it I've right now. I've said that to you before. And it's like, yes, you can eat a microwave chicken breast, but it's going to taste so much more succulent and good if you throw it in like a marinade for 24 hours. And then maybe you throw it in the slow cooker after that for some more time. It's like the best things in life, they take time to develop. So stop microwaving a hot dog and feeding it to me like it's a delicacy. I don't want your microwaved hot dog. That's my that's my soapbox. Dom. <laughs> Dom muted himself. Again. I can't hear you. <laughs> can you hear me? <laughs> now we can. Yes. <laughs> I said, I don't know anything about strength sports, so I stay away from it. <laughs> but you are strong. I think the original question was about bodybuilding, though. Was it? I honestly don't even remember what the actual That fellow looks was. like a bodybuilder. He does. He was quite uh, yak. I, uh, like I, I just know you mentioned bodybuilding at first. Uh, maybe. Maybe. You could be right. But if we are, actually, this question's not even about bodybuilding. That was going to be a segue, but it didn't work. But So, Jordan, we're going to answer your question. So, at Jordan... 
Danette. Yes, George. Oh no, Dom. <laughs> oh no. OBS taking over again. Oh no. Ob. He has OBS. He can't change devices while recording. He has OBS ghosts in his computer, so we lost Dom. <laughs> Try leaving and coming back. Maybe that'll work. Oh. Uh, you can still maybe. hear him. Though. Oh, there he is. Oh, there it is. All right. Well, I asked the question. Well, I guess we probably shouldn't ask the question while he's gone. Nah, we'll ask it again when he comes back. Uh, Jordan Danette asks. What is your general daily sugar intake recommended? It says general a lot in it. For general population lifestyle clients. Dom, <clears throat> the question is general sugar recommendations, sugar intake recommendations for lifestyle clients. How do you phrase it to them? Do you put a limit on it? What's the, uh, what's the takeaway um, there? Well, I support... Um, I support meal plans, so <laughs> I don't really give free range with sugar. So if I had to, if I had to tell somebody, I would say no more than like 30% of your carbs a day, 30% of your carbs. So if you have someone on 300 grams of carbs, that's around 90 grams of sugar a day, 200 grams of carbs, would be like 60 grams of sugar yeah. a day. Do you care the source? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want them eating Sour Patch Kids all day. <laughs> so, like, would your recommendation Delicious. change with, like, Sour Patch versus, like, uh, like apples? Like, if they were... An apple? An apple. Yeah. yeah. So, like, would you, would you bump your sugar recommendation up? You could say, all right, you... No, no, no. Oh, I would still... keep it the same. Okay. So, anyone who does yeah. sign up with Dom, when he gives you that meal plan recommendation, you see the carbs, the sugar recommendation, just remember, Sour Patch, apples, it doesn't matter. But I, I want you to eat a fucking apple. <laughs> eat the goddamn apple. Eat some vitamins. Paul, Jay, any uh, sugar I mean, I think Fitness Pal sets it up like that. Fitness Pal sets 30? it up a cool way. They do. Uh, I, uh, I can't remember what organization it was, but I believe the last recommendation I saw was around 10% of, of calories. Yeah, uh, of calories. Um, but I generally, like if a client were to ask me that, which they have, I generally, I, I tell them like, Hey, this, this is the last recommendation I remember looking at, you know, for general health, you know, probably 10% not, or just above or under is probably fine. Um, but I just tell them, Hey, like I want the majority of your food, let's say 80 to 90% and it can fluctuate just to be from nutrient dense foods, you know, getting a good amount of fiber is all right. Uh, or, or will help a bit with that too, in terms of keeping the junk food a bit lower. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the majority of your foods to come from good nu nutrient dense whole foods. And, uh, you know, if they have some days where the, the sugar is very high, just to not even sweat it, you know, and, just don't go out of their way to make most of their carbs fruity pebbles with like what I've also had um, some clients do before and uh, to try to eat like an adult, you know, because and that's another thing I'll tell them, I'm like, hey, if you're fairly active, your body composition's good, you're not sitting on your butt all day, decent step count training, all of that stuff, and your surplus isn't excessive, um, sugar is the last thing that you have to worry about in terms of your health <clears throat> yeah i agree 
like a fitness pal with me at 400 grams of carbs it has my sugar set at 110 110 so yeah it's right around 30 percent, a little bit below it's like 26 20, like 20, 27 28 percent yeah what percentage of that uh, is cows calories um, Cal- my cows so 440 so i'm at 320 i'm at 3300 cows so that's like 480 so that's 440 the, yeah 480 ish of the 3300 Four four forty divided by thirty two, whatever. So it's about thirteen percent. Yeah, so right around that ten percent. Yeah, so I mean that's not far from ten percent of total cows. I would say probably ten that ten to fifteen percent range. Now, I will say that I have had clients who consume much higher than that. You know, up to fifty percent of their carbs from sugar because they really like berries and apples and oranges and they, you know, uh, they, a lot of that stuff and their results are just fine. Their blood work is solid. The only real issue that I've seen with this is that when the carbs start to drop and calories as a whole start to drop and we have that high sugar count, some individuals have reported increased levels of hunger on the higher sugar intakes and as they switch over to more like starchy carbohydrates that are lower on the sugar end they feel a little bit more full throughout the day but those have just been anecdotal cases so i don't really i I don't give people like a an upper end that they should or shouldn't hit i mean i eat a lot of fruit a day i've always been like that and i don't I, I don't think I've ever seen a lack of progress because of it. No. I don't think if I replaced that fruit with like uh, rice, it would have made a difference. If anything, it's probably more beneficial because of all the micronutrients I'm getting while I'm eating the fruit. I want to add to that too. And in some circumstances, switching it to rice could be have a negative impact, right? Like somebody's dieting uh, and it depends on the fruit. There There are fruits that are not advantageous for that. But, you know, the volume of blueberries that you need to eat yeah. uh, to equal the carbs and rice, way more filling, at least in the short term, right? I need, um, that's a I really good point. Jake, at this point right here, I need well. you to piece there. in the clip from the movie This Is 40, where they're talk- he's at the doctor and they're talking about you have to balance your good fruits with your bad fruits. So you have your good fruits over here and you have your <laughs> bad fruits over here. I need you to find that clip and put that in here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, but, but Paul made know, a good point. Like if you're hungry and then you switch to something like that, your volume of food just like got cut in half almost. Yeah. So it could probably make it even worse. Cause like if we look at yeah, total carbs from a half also, cup of rice and switch that over to like strawberries, Dom, I know you like strawberries for all your people. It's like a lot the, of strawberries. The volume it's difference there is massive, massive. Yeah. Like, 200 grams, 200 grams of strawberry or blueberry is huge. And, you know, to Dom's point, uh, and, and I, I don't think, I, I definitely don't want somebody to watch this and think I'm demonizing other forms of sugar or refined sugar either. Uh, probably not super great on a uh, restricted diet from a hunger aspect. But, you know, to Dom's point, you're getting a lot of good shit with fruit, like vitamins, minerals, water content, you know it's still those carbs are still used like any other form of glucose you know antioxidants um so did i say fiber 
I don't fiber know. in there. But anyways, you just get a lot yeah, of, get a lot of stuff. And I, I mean, 200 grams of strawberries. Let me see. 200 grams of strawberries has how much sugar? Um, strawberries. Because 200 one. grams of strawberries is um, uh, what's it called? It's 15 grams of carbs. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, so for 200 grams. I thought it was more than that, but it's a lot. Yeah. So I mean, low amount. 200 yeah. grams of, of strawberries um, off the USDA. 16 grams of carbs, four grams of fiber, and 10 grams of sugar. And so some... for, that's a, almost a half pound of strawberries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jay. <clears throat> so. Jay, what are, um, when you make a list of good fruits and uh, bad fruits, which do you sort in each column? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I feel like if, if you're eating fruits, you're doing the right thing. I mean, as far as sugar intake, I get the majority of my recommendations from the place that I should, which is the uh, back of a cereal CDC, box, where you should definitely get all of your appropriate and factual information from. So they say 10%. So that's what I follow, 10% of your total caloric intake coming from sugars. Um, but that's a that's always been in a bit of a sliding scale with me because it's like if you like eating fruit, then who am I to say, like, don't eat nature's candy. Is that what that's what they call it, right? Nature's candy? So. Like, you yeah. should be able to eat that. Enjoy that. That's it's, – it's probably – I mean, I say a lot of dumb stuff, but one of the dumbest things I think I say is that, you know, it came from the earth. So it probably is a better or a better option as opposed to like like Sour Patch Kids. Like I've never seen Sour Patch Kids, uh, you know, naturally occurring Sour Patch. I wish that was a thing because they're delicious. But I feel like our caveman physiology probably is better built for breaking down fruit as opposed to Sour Patch Kids. Nature's candy. I guess it depends on what you mean by better for breaking down. But, you know, like I always – when clients ask this question, I'm like, oh, man, I bet you thought you were just going to get a number. And I'm like, we got to really get into this. I'm going to have to educate you, you know, and I hope you're ready to get in this because you almost have to give them like this whole physiology lesson on like – Hey man, like no matter what it goes in your body, your body turns it into glucose. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Right. And then you have to educate them on why some choices are better than others. You know? I think the only the only fruits I tell people to stay away from are like dates. Yeah. Um, just a few that are like super low volume, don't get much calories or get a lot of calories out of it, and a ton of fructose out of it. Because we still should only stay underneath like a 50 gram fructose consumption a day, which is a lot. But if you're somebody eating dates all day long, that could be you could reach that pretty fast. Dried fruits. Uh, I don't know. Also a bad choice. Maybe there's something. Well, it, it depends on the circumstance, too, because, you know, I, I'll tell I'll have people that and I'm sure we all do. And we've recommended I know I know Dom's recommended this. We have a shared client where Dom does his nutrition. And I think or I think it was you, it might have been me, but I think it was you that recommended dry mango. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I always do I do yeah. dried foods for guys that can't eat a lot. Oh. Because it's dried, so yeah. it's super small and there's a bunch of calories behind it. And then a lot mm -hmm. of those are sweetened on top of. They put sugar on top of them. Uh, so that's like a way if you needed to fit more calories in, you could go the dried root, the dried fruit route. Dried fruit route. <laughs> and I, I just think there's some mis, 
I, I and somebody can fact check me on to. this, but I don't think fructose itself is inherently bad. I think we've taken that assumption from studies that were designed to yeah. show a negative effect yeah. from fructose and fructose can be awful under the wrong circumstances in the very high amounts. But once again, physically active calories in check, um, you're, you're probably good even with fructose, especially if it's coming from fruits with all those other things in mixed meals, you know, the fructose study designs are funny. I tried. Huh? The fructose, like the study design, What'd you say? they're almost like funny because don't they like give people like 150, 200 grams of fructose in a day and they're like, hey, this is bad. Well, they, I believe most of them, yeah, most of them are in rodents. And when you do these rodent studies, you're trying to discover mechanisms and stuff. And uh, you basically give them enough of something until something bad happens because you want something bad to happen. <laughs> you're like, whoa, something bad happened, guys. Right. We've got a problem here. <laughs> it's like, like when they study cancer in rats, they, they make sure the rats have a genetic mutation yeah. that predisposes them to cancer. Yeah. You know? Like, <laughs> I think, like, experientially, I remember at the beginning of the whole IIFYM thing, and we were all surviving off of, like, cereals and pop tarts and shit like that. <laughs> like yeah. where your sugar intake was just through the roof um i remember distinctly just feeling bad and a lot of that time granted i was like in contest prep so i <laughs> would feel bad but it was just a different kind of bad like it was like this weird kind of real spiky energy and then like no energy it was just very strange and i remember like I remember having conversations with my uh, sister-in-law <laughs> uh, and she's a pediatrician. I was trying to talk to her about if it fits your macros, like trying to, you know, drop some knowledge on her. And she was like, so what about fruits? And I'm like, I don't really worry about it. You know, I don't really need to eat fruits. I just have to make sure that I hit these macros. And she was like, I don't think that's right. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. I'm pretty well, <laughs> pretty it's sure got Lane Norton told me and he's a doctor. So <laughs> the fuck do you know, lady? What do you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So eat your fruits. There what? No, go ahead. I was going to say there is that that local coach who and I've known him for a really long time who doesn't like his clients to eat fruits. I think we had passed that along at some oh, point yeah. in time. Oh yeah. 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 That's very good take. I uh I was carving up for my show on strawberries. Oh, you're still here? I think he is I ate fruit every single day during my prep. I love fruit. Hell yeah. Hell so games. in my in my rapid backloading experiments, I was talking with Cliff and Cliff was just telling me to be careful when you are carving up on a lot of fruit <coughs> or fruit-based products just because of that fructose glucose um, mix and how it kind of interacts in I believe it's the liver and how you don't get yeah. as good of a like glycogen response from something like fruit just because of that 50-50 fructose-glucose blend or whatever the specific well, not all fruit is. Not all fruit is 50-50. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm saying whatever yeah. the specific fruit actually is. Yeah. Fucking idiot. God damn it. <laughs> I'm leaving the podcast. Yeah. Sorry, guys. That wraps up this episode. Because it has to be turned into glucose. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, nah, but it has to be, yeah, it has to be turned into glucose at the liver before it can be used in the rest of the body. And I would only assume that if there was liver glycogen to replace, it might go there first. Would, yeah. uh, that would be my assumption. I don't know. I know people say that it preferentially refills uh, liver glycogen. Um, but I think people hear that and they mistake it to think that it's only good for liver glycogen. Um, I bit my lip. But uh, there's something else. Another consideration for the fructose, though, in terms of activity is you can actually absorb and get more glucose into the bloodstream if you do glucose and fructose together opposed to just glucose. So there was a... Because of the, the transporters. Chris Bearcat. As the one that kind of put me onto this was uh I forget what he calls it multi something transportable carbohydrates or something like that where maybe the day of the show he would have his athletes have like a sweet potato some chocolate of some sort and some raisins or something like that it was like different trans you trying to trying to like maximize different transport vessels of carbohydrates. I forgot what it's called. I'm probably yeah. butchering it. Yeah, I think that's what Paul is. Yeah, to I forget get at. what it's called too. I I forget what it's called too, but I know it's a thing. That's why Gatorade yeah. uses both. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, um, and, and nobody puts more into performance-based carbohydrate use than fucking Gatorade. No one knows Gatorade. sugar uh, water like Gatorade. <laughs> uh, you got like whole teams of people at universities and shit. Obsessing over it. All right, Jordan, oh, hopefully man, we answered your question else. there. As always, you got a little bit of the answer, and then you got a whole lot of tangent after that. And if that's not what you wanted, maybe you should have asked your question somewhere else because that's what you get from us. And now our topic of the day. Our topic of the day is one that has made its rounds around social media quite a bit recently. More people talking about it than I've probably ever seen. And that is the topic of hormonal birth control, specifically oral contraceptives in women and the effect on all that is kind of health, fitness, muscle hypertrophy, fat loss, hormone optimization in our field. So our good friends over at Stronger by Science, Greg, please come on the podcast. We want to talk about exercise science, study design, please. Like, come on, man. I, you know, I told you we could play one-on-one -on -one basketball as soon as your arm is better. I think your arm is better. We can do a podcast and we can play basketball. If we both play our cards right, just come on the podcast. Uh, over at Stronger by Science, they came out with an article uh, around the subject. And it says, do oral contraceptives affect your gains? So I want to throw the question to our camera is off currently. Don't know if he knows it or not. Dominic Kuza. And because Dom has recently posted a good bit and spoken a good bit about kind of the negatives of oral contraceptives, birth control in women in a fat loss and hormone optimization. So I want to kind of let him get his two cents in on what he's been talking about so that we can then circle back to what is actually a different topic. And that is strength and muscle gains. Dom, take us away. So, um, Obviously, I post a lot about um, birth control. Um, I don't mean to demonize it, but I've seen anecdotally way more 
way more uphill battle uh, kind of scenarios for women trying to, you know, lose weight, lose fat, um, and optimize that kind of stuff when they are on oral contraceptives, um, especially hormonal ones. Um, so kind of the camp that I've seen with blood work and things like that with extended uh, oral contraceptive use, we see a lot of issues with like mineral absorption. Um, so we could see reduction in, in thyroid function because of the lack of iron and the lack of iodine that is uh, absorbed because of birth control. Um, there are some good studies that show that uh, with the iron uptake being, uh, being influenced by oral contraceptives. And then two, we know that oral contraceptives are I they're suppressing sex hormones because just like a guy on testosterone it suppresses your natural testosterone from being created if a woman's on a progestin based or an estrogen based um, oral contraceptive essentially they're putting that hormone in their body thus suppressing their own production of it and that kind of throws off a lot of the ratios of things because when we look at women estrogen progesterone ratios are, are super important and that's where we get into um, where oral contraceptives cause like a lot of estrogen dominance and it might not be because of estrogen coming up really high. It could be the opposite of progesterone gets so low, absolutely borderline nothing that we have estrogen dominance by low progesterone. Um, and then that causes other issues like um, a big cortisol response and the adrenal glands because the body needs to function off of something. And, and a lot of these women that I work with end up telling me they feel one thing and it's they feel wired all the time but they feel tired at the same time and a lot of that comes from that constant adrenal drive that is pumping out cortisol for them to function all day long and when we have that kind of storm obviously we see like reverse t3 climbs up um all systemic uh, systemic stress influences all of that and then it just makes it a lot more difficult for that person to see progress when it comes to weight loss as far as like strength training and things go, I, I, for the women I do program uh, training for it that are on birth control, I personally haven't seen like a reduction in strength or something like that. So I think when I talk about it more, it's more geared towards, you know, getting them extremely lean for competitions um, and then also having them just, you know, lose weight overall. Uh, as far as like weight muscle building and things go, the only the only time I've ever ran into that is when someone's been on for 10 plus years and the suppression is so intense that it's tanked their testosterone at this point and now their testosterone is almost non-existent. Um, that's when I've seen like difficulty gaining muscle. Um, but as far as like strength goes, um, I haven't really seen that in, in my practice. I have a question for you, Dom. Yes, I have questions too. And, and by no means is this to necessarily like, like discredit you or anything, but it's just something it, when you tell me these things, it's just a question that pops up. Like, I wonder, um, what do you, do you think that potentially that, um, maybe some of these individuals, like they're struggling with losing weight, they're kind of, they are stressed out about it, you know, their body image, stuff like that um maybe fluid fluctuations all of those things and uh 
you know, then the conversation comes up and you're, you guys talk about potentially, Hey, I, I think that this could be a solution. Let's maybe try, uh, weaning off the birth control, coming off the birth control and see how that impacts things. And then you give them a bit of background on why it might be helpful, you know, that maybe, uh, they buy into it. Um, or I don't want to use that word, like are now a little more emotionally invested into it and potentially they feel like they've found a solution that, that may work, may help them out, uh, reach their goal better, lower their stress, and maybe some of the positive things happen just from that belief and de uh, decrease in stress. I mean, I, I can see where that where your train of thought is with that definitely because like that's kind of like what that placebo effect is like when somebody finds a solution to something they just feel better they start functioning better um but like i wouldn't have that conversation with somebody until i got all their blood work tested and then and i do want to say and i don't want to just obviously you have a lot of anecdotes and a lot of blood work to uh you know say this so i, I definitely want to make sure listeners know i'm not trying to discredit that no well. and that's why i i could see for sure like where you're coming from like just everything about the weight loss journey all that is causing a bunch of stress you you give them this you know potential solution that they really believe in that's going to reduce overall stress on top of you know the birth control coming out everything all that so i'm sure I'm sure they could. I'm sure they do see more results just based off of that mentality switch too. Um, I could agree with that completely. <clears throat> okay. But I do think, um, just based on like hard blood work, I don't think I don't think uh, frustration of diet progress and weight progress is powerful enough to actually influence sex hormones. Yeah, and I definitely think there's something there too, just because not that I'm an expert on birth control, like no very small tidbits here or there, but I know like there are different generations of birth control and the evidence for some of them having negative uh, impacts on body composition are worse in some than others or performance even. Uh, and I don't know if maybe that's something you've sort of seen. I don't know how deep you look into the various types that your clients have had, but I'm sure you've had clients. You're like, yeah, there's no issue. Like you're on birth control and everything's going yeah, well. There's and no I, reason and to mess with that. And, then, and I do have yeah. that. I, I have, I coach some women competitors that are on birth control still to this day. We don't mess with it because blood work looks good. They're responding well. There's no need to remove it at that point. And my, I don't think you should remove it until it's actually causing an issue. I don't think you should just not be yeah. on it just to not be on it. I think if it's causing an issue, it's 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 causing that uphill battle fight. That's when you know you have that conversation because I don't think you. Sh I, I don't, I'm not against using it. I'm I'm against anything that's gonna hurt our progress. For sure, for sure. Jason, did you have something to add? I think Paul <clears throat> brought up some really good points, and that was basically what my line of question was going to be, because I always think about, especially within the, the context of a contest prep, just how um, inconsistent results typically are with women, with men, I think I, I kind of look at it like our physiology is like pretty stupid. Like we really don't, 
like as an organism, a man, like we really don't do like we're not as complicated as women from a number to even from an obviously from an emotional standpoint, we're just not as complicated as women. And that's not like that's not me being making a derogatory statement. I'm just saying that women yeah. just have more of an emotional spectrum in comparison to men. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm just, you know, I just think about you know in this conversation just how complicated a female's physiology is and how difficult it is to get them lean because their physiology is basically fighting that process far harder than a man's just because they're, they're, they're built to do something different. And a lot of that is revolved. A lot of that revolves around body fat and that need for body fat. And so this was kind of an interesting read just because I wonder how that need for body fat and the taking the oral contraceptives, like why, like why does it vary from woman to woman? Like those are all the questions that come like, why isn't it consistent from female to female? Like those are all the weird questions I come up with. Like, is it, is it, is it an environmental thing? Like, it, it, like, what is it? I don't know. Yeah. I like, I think I have more questions than anything else. And I think that's something we're never going to be able to pinpoint just because of all the variables involved in that. But um, like recently I had a client who I coached in the past and they had, um, they had like a bad experience with birth control when it came to like losing fat, all those things. And um, when they finally got off of it, we kind of put them on a protocol to just reset their hormones and just get things naturally back working they saw a lot of progress. So whatever, fast forward two years now, they come back to me and they want to get back on some sort of birth control. That's where I recommend like the copper IUD where it's non-hormonal, it's very effective. They can just, and they're still getting their contraceptive, but because I know of their past, hormonal birth control's not in the wheelhouse for her to go in. But I'm still all for it. Go ahead. If you want to use it, that's fine. But just keep in mind that last time it hurt you a lot. Maybe take this non-hormonal route this time and it might be a bit more beneficial for you. I, uh, I had a thought, uh, that Jason just, I don't, I've never thought about this before. Uh, but for some reason when Jason said, um, contest prep it just popped in my head and you know i was thinking about control like how we like to have a lot of control and then i thought about you know just in my experience from various females i've dated and you know now i'm married uh how erratic some females can be with their dosing of birth control um you know in terms of a lot of times skip it for three days and then they're like well the doctor said if i ever miss days just take all the doses I missed at one time, right? And how frequently that happens to where they go three or four days without this hormone and then they take this giant dose and then they feel awful. Like I, I, my wife has done that once. She's taken like three or four days of birth control at one time. Jesus. And uh, emotionally, I, I, I picked up some things and I think I'm like, I think it might be related to that, right? You know, uh, I don't know, just a thought that I don't think we, a lot of us consider when we coach women, uh, taking birth control. Yeah. I just feel like it's a, it's a, I don't know. Cause there's even studies in regards to, uh, I think is, is menses the term, the cessation of menstruation, um, like how inconsistent that is. Like some women, it tends to seem, it seems to be body weight consistent. Some women it's body fat consistent. Some people, it's 
some women it's a training thing it's like this wide spectrum of all these things that affect female physiology and nobody really knows like dom was saying like who knows that's it just blows my mind that women are that there's so much there's so many variables involved with women where here we are i'm just trying to make a sandwich later on i barely have that figured out <laughs> no, i think it's very true so I know Ryan's ready to move on. No, I'm on. ready to fucking say what I got to say. You guys been talking t- too long. I got shit to say here. So this was the kind of the takeaway, the big thing that I pulled out of this article as a whole. Um, definitely recommend reading the entire... Because if you're someone who's not super familiar with kind of birth control and, you know, the interactions there and how it works and the effect it can have, this is going to be a good article that can kind of serve as like an intro in there. would also recommend going and joining Lyle McDonald's Facebook group, Body Recomposition on Facebook, and then just search birth control. He has a write-up of every generation of birth control that was absolutely phenomenal. I still have the screenshots somewhere on one of my old phones, and I go back and I read those from time to time. But here's the kind of the big piece that I took out of this. Um, Greg says, you know, he was able to find 10 total papers, eight distinct studies on, um, the topic of oral contraceptives, strength, lean mass, and hypertrophy outcomes. So no discussion of fat loss, hormone optimization, no discussion of long-term effect. You know, there's a lot of women out there who are 24, 25, 27 years old, and they've been on birth control since they were 15. So not a lot of looking at kind of the effect over 10, 12, 15 years. But in terms of the outcomes that they were looking at here, you know, strength, performance, and, you know, strength outcomes, hypertrophy, and lean body mass accrual, there was no real consistent, notable impact of oral contraceptive on that. All of that was summed up here nicely in Table 5, Summary of Results. Um, I won't just sit here and make you guys read through here, but some of these studies, you know, had the classic errors of exercise, not classic errors, the classic limitations, I should say, of exercise science, eight week study duration, untrained subjects, not controlling for how long they had been on birth control, not correcting for dose. Some of them mixed generations. They were looking at second and third generation at the same time. But the overall consensus from the literature that exists that measures these outcomes seems to show that oral contraceptive has no effect on muscle building muscle or strength which I think is kind of, it's kind of a breath of fresh air and it's kind of like an exhale for the women that are reluctant to get off or to stop taking oral contraceptive. Maybe they're just at a point in their life where they still want to stay on the the pill, neither here nor there. And there's been kind of this big push on social media of just like birth control bad. It's like, well, yes, in the scope of, you know, long-term hormone optimization, maybe fat loss, maybe, you know, cortisol, things like that, maybe. But if we're looking at strength and gaining muscle, it seems like this is kind of like a win or something that would be in the good column for oral contraceptive in a wave of kind of like bad news. So that's kind of how I read through this. I don't know if you guys had any, any additional points to add there. And if I'm not mistaken, because I, I read through the, uh, the study very quickly, um, just skimmed it as well as this one. 
Um, in this particular study with this generation of birth control, they found a potential argument for uh, an, an ergogenic or you know anabolic effect in birth control, right? Well, there are some that have here. It says it up in this top note up here. So it says, I don't know if you can read this up here. Fuck, I can't highlight it either. Well, like some some progestins can activate like the yeah. So it says receptor. also split users yeah. apart. So this study split users apart based on the androgenicity of the progestins in the birth control. The lean body mass increased by two point five percent with low androgenicity birth control, and only 03 percent with medium slash high androgenicity so in this study itself it looks like the low group actually gained a greater amount of lean body mass which is an interesting find yeah well i mean the actual the actual um be like not this table but the actual study because this this reviewed like yes. uh largely uh you're talking about the first study, study i sent yeah. out right i think in that one the birth control users had like a certain man it's hard to say i don't want to say they definitely had more hypertrophy but but certain aspects of you know muscle things that are involved in muscle remodeling and anabolism were greater in the uh oral contraceptive using group in this in this specific one the one that you're talking about i think that might be the top one on the graph yeah what was the, I think yeah, that yeah. was the, yeah, that was the one that was oral contraceptive use impairs muscle gains in young women. That was the title of that one, right? That's this Lee 2009 study up top. No. Uh, it wasn't impairs. It was molecular markers of scuttle muscle hypertrophy following 10 weeks of resistance. Oh, the second one. Training, yeah, yeah. Uh, this Oxfeld 2020 study. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the second one right here. Ten weeks. All right, that wraps us up our topic of the day, gentlemen. I have one piece of good news to bring us home. So I have been listening to the audiobook for Shoe Dog. Have you guys listened to that one? The the guy who owns Nike, Knight. The guy who started Nike. It's his, oh. his autobiography. I've heard no, of it. Never, never listened to it. Heard of it. I had heard of it for a long time and I wanted to listen to it. In it, he was talking about how they first kind of started getting in with Oregon, like sports and, you know, putting Nikes on the feet of athletes at Oregon. And I had to rewind it because I thought I heard incorrectly. And he said that they were working with the basketball coach and the football coach at Nike at the time. The football coach's name was Dick Enron. And, and then he said, he just kind of tried to sneak it in there. He said, you know, and we were also working at with the basketball coach whose name was Dick Harder. And I said, hold on a second. This gentleman's name is what now? And so I rewinded it and he said, the men's basketball coach, Dick Harder. And I said, wow, okay, well, now I need to do some research and I need to find if it's possible that someone actually has the name Dick Harder. And I learned about a lot about him. I learned about Richard Alvin Harder, uh, American basketball coach, worked in both the NBA 
and the NCAA. So that was my good news, was that there's a gentleman, I think he's still alive, yeah. He's still, oh no, he died in 2012. Rest in peace to Dick Harder. You don't I think we just leave on that. No. <laughs> you don't, yeah, you don't have to have any any comment on that. You can just shoutouts, Charlie. Uh, yeah, we're out. Let's yeah, let's go. guys, listen. We'll see you on the next episode. Uh, in the meantime, in between times, and if you do want to get some dick harder in your life, we'll see you on the next episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. Until then, stay gifted, and we love you. Bye. Bye.